Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Earlier this month, Gilcrease Museum announced the culmination of several multi-year projects to digitize and make public some of the museum's most important collections. With over 350,000 objects, the museum's work to fully digitize its collections will take decades. But now there are three new collections which are available online at gilcrease.org. The Eddie Faye Gates Tulsa Race Massacre uh, collection, which features 700 photographs, 40 hours of video interviews with massacre survivors and descendants, her oral histories that she conducted in the North Tulsa Oral History Project, along with documents and ephemera. The Thomas and Mary Nemo Moran collection, it's a collection of the noted 19th century landscape painter, along with a collection of his wife, Mary Nemo, with essays and digitized views of their most famous works in the Gilcrease collection, along with watercolors and sketches. And the Indigenous Painting Collection, which features 47 of Gilcrease's more than 200 Native artists represented in the collection, along with essays on 80 of the paintings and biographies of some of the artists. They're all available for viewing on gilcrease.org. My guests today are Susan Neal, the Executive Director of Gilcrease Museum, and Laura Fry, the Senior Curator. Susan Neal and Laura Fry, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Rich. Glad to be here. It's wonderful to talk about Gilcrease as the museum (laughs) continues to be reconstructed. But in today's time, how important is the online access to a museum's collections like you've just uh, done with these three collections, especially a museum as diverse as Gilcrease, where you have, it's not just about art, it's also about history and myth and anthropology and civilizations. How important is it to have those collections online? I will tell you it's very important, and Gilcrease was ahead of the curve, uh, at least here in Oklahoma, in getting this collection, beginning to get this collection digitized. Really, we hired someone nearly a decade ago to, uh, she was from uh, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, who'd been integral to their digitization process. We brought her here specifically to get our collections, you know, to begin that process of, of digitizing First, we just really had to work on the technology and build the infrastructure so that it could be digitized. We eventually found out how much it costs to digitize an object. We actually boiled it down to that. Uh, But we also learned that it takes a lot of people to do that work. You know, your photography, the conservation work that has to be done in advance, the research, maybe even involving community people in tagging to make sure that the information that you're putting online is involves the right voices, their voices, if it's, especially if it's culturally belonging to other communities. We've learned so much through this, but what we've really learned is with the size of collection that we have. You could be doing it forever. I've, to- I've told the team here a few years ago, you have great job security <laughs> because we figured out with a cast of maybe 15 people, it was going to take us another 23 years. Wow. So um, we don't have 15 people. So, yes, it's probably not going to be digitized in, in our collective lifetime. You said you, you actually monetize the cost of digitizing a work of art. Mm-hmm. What is that cost? You, you know, know, I'd have to go back and look, but I think uh, we've actually figured it out to be about $50 an object, uh-huh. depending on conservation. And for a document, again, depending on conservation, it can be considerably less. Yeah. But there's, a, there's varying degrees of cost associated with it if you, if you build in the labor. And, of course, photographing art seems to a layperson like this should be easy, but actually it's not because anybody who has photographed art knows that it's almost impossible not to get some sort of glare off the object when you're photographing it. And so it, it's a yeah. specialized skill. It is, and we're fortunate to have someone, again, great team at Gilcrease, 
who has great experience and who continues to talk me into investing in even more expensive cameras uh, <laughs> so that that, 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 that glare uh, yeah. doesn't happen and it gets even more sophisticated and, and even a better product. And Laura, feel free to jump in. At a, at a time when the museum is closed, how does this add to the urgency of having your collections online? Well, it's, it's really amazing, you know, between the COVID shutdown three years ago now and then, you know, about uh, and then a year after that, the museum closing for construction, we've really been, you know, missing this public presence. And and it's even a little bit challenging for us as curators to see parts of the collection right now when we're in this interim period because of the way things are packed away during construction. So having these three collections fully digitized has already transformed our curatorial work internally because we're able to so much more easily research what's in the collection, see what's here. And it's already changed the exhibits that we'll open the new museum with because we're going to be bringing artworks in that we didn't know about before this project. I mean, these are thousands and thousands of works for for all that, um, you know, the curatorial team's been working with this collection for years. There's always something new to discover. And this process has really facilitated that process. This is something I wanted to get at. How does this online project inform what visitors in the real museum will see down the road? Because one, you've done research on the object. You can easily put that into uh, the placards next to the works of art. So you're telling a more full story about the collection, I would think. Absolutely. It's really, it's the the research that's happened with these different collections is going to show up in the new museum in a variety of ways, but we'll have a far greater number of artworks on paper on view and archives on view than we'd been able to do in the old building. And part of the reason for that is, um, you know, we can only keep those out on view for three to six months typically to avoid uh, light damage. But because we have all of this additional digitization and research, it's much easier to know the next work to replace that with, the next work to replace that with. So um, even for our long-term galleries, our core galleries in the future building, there's always going to be something new on view as we're able to really use the depth of this collection in a way that we've never been able to in the past. That's interesting, Susan, because all of a sudden the museum becomes less static in a series of temporary exhibitions rather than a sort of evolving permanent collection that is always changing so that you have people coming regularly and seeing a new Gilcrease, if you will. Well, and that was part of the goal, as Laura said, to, to make sure that the community visitors are seeing uh, more of the collection. And this is one of the ways that they'll be seeing more of the collection and parts of the collection that they've never seen before. Yeah. yeah. We'll also have some digital tools that are included in the new core galleries where a lot of this material will be able to uh, to feature and show. So visitors will be able to see artworks in person on the walls that they've never had a chance to see before, but also um, we'll have a digital collections journey um, with stations throughout the galleries. So there'll be a chance to scroll through there and see hundreds of additional works from the Gilcrease collection that relate to what they're seeing on view. And we'll be pulling from a lot of this recent work that was just digitized. Now, tell us about the importance of these three new online collections. Uh, With 350,000 items, I know some of it was grant-oriented, but but the idea of okay, what do we do first, or what do we do, what do we do in the depth that you're doing with these three collections? Because I assume, you know, if you can get further grant money, you'll do other collections at the museum. It's interesting. We went to New York four or five years ago uh, and talked to them about that specifically, the Loose Foundation about what we were doing, and they were intrigued and wanted to bring that research forward. That really let us know that we're, we're still sitting on a gold mine of opportunity. And they have expressed uh, then and in subsequent years 
that they want to continue. Uh, if, if we deliver on the project, as we have, that they'd want to continue to work with us to bring forward more of these collections. The collections that we decided to focus on, I, I credit a, a gentleman on our staff, Frank Mulhern, because, and Mark Dolph, who's no longer with our team, really focusing on Thomas Moran, Mary Nemo Moran, and then the Southeastern Plains collection. That was really how they presented it to uh, the Luce Foundation. And then when we were so fortunate to get the Eddie Faye Gates collection, being able to bring that forward more fully to the community, not just for scholarly research, but to our community, folks in North Tulsa, that was really always what the, the Gates family wanted to see happen. So it was very important that we get that digitized and rehoused and conserved. They gave it to Gilcrease with that intent that we would not only exhibit it, but take care of it, be the good stewards, get it online, make it researchable and conserve it. So we're really excited about what this means. Um, a lot of different communities and funders are interested in different parts of the collection and would love to f- help us focus on that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Eddie Faye Gates uh, Tulsa Race Massacre collection. This is one of the newest collections at, at Gilcrease, and it's a huge archive. I mean, it's as big as any, probably pretty close to... It's- there are some collections that are larger, but is there a collection more timely or more significant or relevant to Tulsa right now than the Eddie Faye Gates collection? I don't think so. Yeah, and the variety of, of media mm-hmm, is also yeah. much greater, too, because you're looking at, what, 700 photos? Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the, the, the collection as far as the site. I know it's hours and hours of video footage, many yeah. other interviews in written form with survivors and descendants. Yeah, and, and for this, this initial um, grant from IMLS, the Institute of Museum and Library uh, Services, we were able to digitize more than 700 photographs and I think more than 40 hours of oral history recordings that Eddie Faye Gates had conducted. And there's also other documents and ephemera included as well. But these are photographs um, and oral histories that relate specifically to the history of the Tulsa Race Massacre and to that you know, particular time period in Tulsa when, when Greenwood is thriving and then the, the violence of the massacre and the immediate aftermath in the 1920s. But the collection also includes a variety of documentation about North Tulsa history and culture throughout the 20th century. So it's more than just focusing on the race massacre. It really provides uh, this wonderful perspective into this important part of Tulsa. Well, also something uh, the museum did was uh, for some of the photographs, for example, I I think there's one example of of a photograph that appears to be vacant lots. Mm -hmm. And you did something called community tagging to help uh, viewers understand what was on that site at one point. Yes, um, part of the grant, we invited community elders paired with high school students to look through the photographs, um, identify individuals or places or some of the, some things that you know someone less familiar with this area might not realize. And that that photograph you mentioned, there was a one of the community taggers looked at a photo that apparently showed basically a, a parking lot, <laughs> and she said, "But this is really important because to our community, this was the dividing line between North and South Tulsa." So that was really, while that looked like an unremarkable photo, it really had this particular significance to the North Tulsa community. My guests today are uh, Laura Fry, the senior curator at Gilcrease, and the executive director of Gilcrease Museum, Susan Neal. As Gilcrease uh, recently announced the culmination of several projects to digitize some of the museum's most important collections, and they're my guests today on Studio Tulsa. Well, something else that, you know, as, as you well know, Susan, Eddie Faye Gates was important for publicizing what happened in 1921. And she was tirelessly working throughout her entire life 
you know, she st- served on the state commission of the what was then the Tulsa race riot, which was, of course, a very contentious commission I where, yeah, yeah, absolutely. A long time Tulsans will remember this. And I guess you have an important repository of knowledge that sort of documents the whole history of the race massacre moving from the shadows into the light. We have a lot of her writings, but what we have more than anything is the commitment to make sure that the public knows what her activism meant when it came time for the 100 commemoration of the Ray's Massacre. If all of the pre-work that an advocacy and activism and education and leadership and persistence, doggedness, <laughs> refusal to stand down that Eddie Fay Gates hadn't exhibited over her lifetime as a teacher first, as an educator, um, as an historian. She was, I know many people credit a lot of different historians for bringing this story to light, but I really credit her with making them aware of it. And yes, they may have written a very definitive book, but she was the catalyst. And she was here the whole time. She was here the whole time, and her family, her own heritage, it was so important to the Gates family that it stay in North Tulsa. So it's emblematic of her work that it's there. Now, one thing that has come out of this is a series of teaching guides, Mm -hmm. correct? Based on the collection. Tell me a little about these. Well, we're lucky that Allison Rossi on our team um, created a a curriculum and teaching guides and worked with teachers uh, as part of the IMLS grant that, that funded that work as well. Not only did it fund the community tagging and the researching and the digitization efforts, we crossed a lot of disciplines with this grant. And we wanted to include, since Thomas Gilcrease, the museum's real name is the Thomas Gilcrease Institute for American (laughs) History and Art. And you and I have joked that that doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. (laughs) But it was important to us to make education curriculum and teacher training around that available as well. So uh, we wrote that into the grant and we've been looking forward to letting more and more people take advantage of that. We'll have the annual Eddie Fay Gates Lecture, and uh, we can continue those teacher trainings as we go. That's great. That's great work. Well, let's talk about the big art project, which is the Thomas Moran and Mary Nemo uh, Moran collection. This is, again, one of the largest collections that, uh, that Gilcrease has. Uh, I think it's almost 2,400 items. And so tell me about the process of... Uh, of digitizing this, uh, Laura. Yeah, well, I mean, it, Thomas Moran is is one of those artists that Gilcrease has long been known for. Um, his painting Shoshone Falls on the Snake River is this, you know, fourteen foot wide canvas that's really hard to miss. It's hard to miss. It's become <laughs> such a kind of signifier for Gilcrease Museum um, for good reason. But but while some of his paintings in the collection have been widely published, lent to different institutions, been on exhibit for years. I think a lot of people were unaware that the the Thomas Moran collection at Gilcrease included more than a thousand artworks by Moran, but also more than four hundred works by his wife, Mary Nemo Moran, whose career is far less known today than her husband's. But it's becoming more known, Absolutely. certainly in the last few years, as we uh, the art world has a reckoning with artists of color and artists of something other than a male gender. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and and as I think more and more uh, Ameri- women artists are being recognized for their work, even if you know historians were really I think ignoring them uh, for the most part through this last century or more. 
Um, and, and Mary Nemo Moran was fairly well known during her lifetime. She exhibited her work nationally across the United States. Um, she became a really well known as a printmaker. She, um, her etching techniques were just beautiful. She was part of this larger movement in American um, etching and printmaking in the late 19th century. And she was the first woman to join um, a couple of these national printmaking societies and etching societies in New York and London, which was really significant and helped open the, uh, the doors for women artists coming after her. So I think her career was significant, but also her impact on women in the arts was significant in the late 19th century. And with digitizing this full collection of her work, we're able to show all of her etchings, but also her sketchbooks, some of her watercolors. Um, and, and wash drawings and really take a closer look at how she developed her career and look, consider her as an artist in her own right and not just someone in the shadow of her husband's career. What I found interesting about the collection online was that, yes, you have the, the gorgeous, huge uh, canvases that we know Moran for, but you also have sketches. And you also have perhaps just the bare minimum, minimalist almost, uh, sketches that would at some point maybe become a painting or did become a painting. And so it gives us a sense of the artist process as well. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that we were able to do with this, uh, these new sites for, for the Moran collection is there are um, a whole series of essays um, around this collection and, that, and how it reveals different aspects of the, the true careers for both Thomas and Mary. But you can really see throughout the Gilcrease collection how both of these artists really built their career, how they made a living as artists, how Thomas Moran wasn't just a painter. He was constantly looking for ways to connect his artwork to the public, to, to, to figure out how to make a living at this. This was always a, just a constant challenge. So he's doing printmaking projects, painting projects, taking commissions, working with uh, newspaper illustrators. He's doing all of these things, and you can really see that um, in the Gilcrease Collection, see his entrepreneurship um, through the Gilcrease Collection. And, of course, uh, later in life, he sort of made a residency at, at Grand Canyon for a number of summers where he was uh, basically, hey, leave with a memento of your, your visit here. So, I mean, he was really was the, the model of a, a real working artist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and we have some of those sketchbooks from the Grand Canyon trips, which are just amazing, and... It's an exciting collection to really see this depth. And again, this we've had some publications in the past that have explored Thomas Moran's field sketches, but they reproduced, you know, thumbnail-sized black and white reproductions. So we've never had a chance to really show this collection in all of its depth. And um, and in addition to their artworks, this collection also includes an archive, um, the archives for the Morans, which is their notes, diaries, photographs, sale records, correspondence back and forth. So it really should, and it's, these are, items that we haven't yet had a chance to fully absorb and now, but now they're digitized. The Gilcrease team will be able to research this material. Outside researchers have access to it. And so I think this will lead to some really, you know, exciting new areas to explore for these two artists. A lot of the Moran collection involves watercolors mm -hmm. as well, which you can't put out <laughs> for yep. years at a time. Exactly. <laughs> Ideally. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I remember when I first started working at Gilcrease, all of the Moran watercolors were in stored very carefully in boxes in our graphic storage vault. And if I had to go into that vault to research anything, to look at any artwork, I always tried to take just a couple of extra minutes to open one of those Moran boxes so I could look at a couple of those watercolors because that was the only way you could see them. We hadn't digitized this whole collection. And that was the only way I could learn about this collection. And it was just amazing, the detail of these works, getting to see them, um, like it was, it's just getting to do that sense of exploration was one of my favorite parts of my job. And now that's available to the world. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really amazing. 
And I, having the outside scholarship come in, have there been any new discoveries or, you know, little little things that, oh, we didn't know this about? Constant. <laughs> um, we have adjusted more titles. Um, we've realized that we had incorrect titles. We had, in, you know, that maybe the date range was off that, you know, is this actually a work that Thomas and Mary collaborated on? There's a few that where we think that oh, they're really? actually, there's a few, actually, there's a couple of Thomas works that we think Mary actually might have worked on, but we're kind of, it's like, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, so we're really seeing how they work together. Um, but there's a lot of works where we say, well, that was actually identified as Pennsylvania, but you know, it looks a lot more like Wyoming <laughs> <laughs> when we really stopped to take a look and who titled that and what, you know, where did that come from? Oh, that, that just, you know, maybe that didn't actually happen. A lot of times titles happening. comes from the first yeah. owner outside, of, out, outside yeah. of the artist. Yeah. Or, you know, a registrar or a volunteer working with the, you know, collection decades ago doing their best, you know. So, so I think we've, we've been able to really correct a lot of our records, co correct a lot of our media um, titles, and then, and start to make new connections between the collections too. So it's, um, that's been really exciting. And and one of the things I was really totally unaware of before we started this project is it's not just Thomas and Mary. We have a variety of work by several different Moran family members. This whole family worked as artists um, mm. or there were there were working artists throughout. There were Thomas Moran's brothers. Several of them were also involved in the arts. One of his nephews, a, a sister-in-law. I mean, they all really... I think Thomas Rand was the most famous of them, but the, many family members from a couple generations were involved in the arts in really significant ways. And you can see some of that in the Gilcrease collection, too. Very quickly, the other third collection is the Indigenous Painting Collection at Gilcrease, which I am so glad is out there for more people to see because this was a part of the art world that I was sort of late getting interested in. And now I'm sort of devouring, you know, especially contemporary Indigenous artists. Uh, and so tell me a little about this collection as well. Yeah, so this collection is really exciting. Um, you know, we had long known at Gilcrease that we have this large collection of 20th century paintings by indigenous artists, mostly works on paper. Um, but again, many of them hadn't been digitized. They were all inventoried, but we didn't have images of them. And, and it was really challenging to go physically through our art storage to look at each painting when you were trying to figure out what was really in the collection. And this collection took a lot to even define the scope at the beginning as we started working on it um, because we have more than 2,500 paintings uh, by indigenous artists. And we ended up, for the sake of the project, narrowing that list to about 1,500 works to focus on. So this can be expanded, and we hope it is going forward. It involved a really comprehensive research, a biographical research into every artist in the Gilcrease collection. And through that process, we actually identified several artists who, you know, because we lacked biographical information about them, we didn't realize they were a tribal citizen. So mm. we were able to really add to this list of indigenous artists in the Gilcrease collection. And it's been really a revelation to see the, the depth and variety of the work that we have. I know um, a curator, Chelsea Herr, and I, um, when we were first really combing through some of these new images that, that were starting to be uploaded into, you know, our, our internal databases, we were just sort of squealing with excitement. We said, I didn't know this was in the collection. This one's amazing. Well, let's, <laughs> let's make sure, let's feature that in this gallery in the new building. Let's, you know, let's, uh, let's be sure to like highlight this artist. And, and so I think just seeing that, that variety has been really exciting, but also the, the research that was done into the collection uh, by Jordan uh, Cocker was very distinct because she took um, really in some ways, came up with a, a new research method for this. She really took an oral history and community-based approach to her research. And on some level, that was necessary because very little has been published about some of these artists, or they're almost practically nothing. Um, there's no Wikipedia page. There's no, they're, they're not featured in a book. Um, and so she was going back to the artists themselves or to their descendants 
But even for artists who are a little better known, she was also taking this approach. And it yielded this really rich, community-based insights into the work that I don't think you could have gathered any other way. And we're really excited to see how that method of researching these works might be applied or used by other institutions going forward, having seen, you know, how it worked with Gilcrease. That's, that's great. You can see these three uh, collections at gilcrease.org. Uh, Susan, before we leave, uh, it's one thing to see it online. It's another thing to see uh, the artwork or the collection in person. When is that going to be? Reopening the museum is the goal, right? So, so we can share it not just locally, but with visitors from around the world, which is what the digital collection does for us as well. But as many people know, whether they were remodeling a kitchen or uh, building a museum, uh, we've all experienced the impacts of COVID. And uh, this is a city-managed project. It's a city asset. And the city has uh, an obligation to make how it conducts those uh, public bidding processes. It's just that. It's all very public. And it's done in a certain way that is within the Oklahoma Municipal Budget Act. And as we went through the process of letting contracts for uh, this project, like it or not, it was at the height of COVID. You're already deep into design and deep into construction. And uh, the decision had to be made. Is it uh, more expensive to keep going or more expensive to stop and pause until we get through this very unprecedented inflationary impact of, of the pandemic. And we learned that it was more expensive to stop. So not unlike, uh, you know, I'm so glad it worked out for Tulsa's new project, the VA hospital, the Veterans Hospital. They were going through the same thing at the same time that Gilcrease was. And uh, I think that they ran into a $31 million impact. And fortunately for Tulsa, that project was literally rescued by the Defense Authorization Act. Um, at the end of 2022. But we have no such safety net. And yet those inflationary costs are very real. The the cost of, this is more than you may have wanted to know, but the cost of concrete, the cost of mechanical and electrical, uh, the cost of steel, and the, the exterior shell of the building, some of those costs actually quadrupled during that period mm. of time. And so we faced at the end of 2022 a $33 million inflationary impact. We had already raised additional funds to take care of the first chapter of the pandemic, which was labor shortages, supply chain issues. Those costs had already been felt. And we had raised uh, from Gilcrease additional money to support the project. By the time we finish uh, helping support this project to get it, you know, to closure and to opening, uh, we will have raised, um, I guess, just under $50 million from the private sector for the project. So to get it open, we have funds in hand to actually complete the exterior shell of the building. Those funds are, again, are in hand, and that uh, can be completed by the end of 2024. But this is so much more than a building, and I think Laura, again, has done a good job in explaining why. This is about a relationship with the community and the entire world for this collection. And so what must happen on the inside is the exhibitions. (laughs) And this remaining $20 million that we have, because we were successful in bringing that $33 million deficit down to 20. And um, right before mid-April, the mayor let me know that he was confident that the city was going to put $10 million into the uh, Improve Our Tulsa 3 package. That will be before voters on August 8th. 
and it's happening, and he's positioned it as a challenge grant. And so Gilcrease staff needs to raise that remaining $10 million, and we are confident that we can do that. We have already raised five of that 10. So again, I, I want to assure the public that we are going to stand up this museum, and we are certainly going to fulfill the fundraising of that last $20 million, and hopefully have this open to the public in early 2026. Well, we look forward to that day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. The Executive Director of Gilcrease Museum, Susan Neal, along with Laura Fry, the Senior Curator at the museum, as the museum announced the culmination of several multi-year projects to digitize some of the museum's most important collections. You can learn more at gilcrease.org. Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.